Section 9 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Alexander, Chapters 1 to 11. It is the life of Alexander the king, and of Caesar who overthrew Pompey that I am writing in this book. And the multitude of the deeds to be treated is so great that I shall make no other preface than to entreat my readers, in case I do not tell of all the famous actions of these men, nor even speak exhaustively at all in each particular case, but in epitome for the most part, not to complain. For it is not histories that I am writing, but lives." and in the most illustrious deeds there is not always a manifestation of virtue or vice. Nay, a slight thing like a phrase or a jest often makes a greater revelation of character than battles where thousands fall, or the greatest armaments, or sieges of cities. Accordingly, just as painters get the likenesses in their portraits from the face and the expression of the eyes wherein the character shows itself, but make very little account of the other parts of the body, so I must be permitted to devote myself rather to the signs of the soul in men, and by means of these to portray the life of each, leaving to others the description of their great contests. As for the lineage of Alexander, on his father's side he was a descendant of Heracles, through Charonus, and on his mother's side a descendant of Aeacus, through Neoptolemus. This is accepted without any question, and we are told that Philip, after being initiated into the mysteries of Samothrace, at the same time with Olympias, he himself being still a youth and she an orphan child, fell in love with her, and betrothed himself to her at once with the consent of her brother Arimbas. Well then, the night before that on which the marriage was consummated, the bride dreamed that there was a peal of thunder, and that a thunderbolt fell upon her womb, and that thereby much fire was kindled which broke into flames that travelled all about, and then was extinguished. At a later time, too, after the marriage, Philip dreamed that he was putting a seal upon his wife's womb, and the device of the seal, as he thought, was the figure of a lion. The other seers, now, were led by the vision to suspect that Philip needed to put a closer watch upon his marriage relations. But Aristander of Talmessus said that the woman was pregnant, since no seal was put upon what was empty, and pregnant of a son whose nature would be bold and lion-like. Moreover, a serpent was once seen lying stretched out by the side of Olympias as she slept, and we are told that this, more than anything else, dulled the ardour of Philip's attentions to his wife, so that he no longer came often to sleep by her side, either because he feared that some spells and enchantments might be practised upon him by her, or because he shrank from her embraces in the conviction that she was the partner of a superior being. But concerning these matters, there is another story to this effect. All the women of these parts were addicted to the Orphic rites and the orgies of Dionysus from the very ancient times, being called Clodones and Mimalones. Footnote. Macedonian names for Bacantes. End of footnote. And imitated in many ways the practices of the Edonian women and the Thracian women about Mount Hamus, from whom, as it would seem, the word Threskoven came to be applied to the celebration of extravagant and superstitious ceremonies. Footnote. Plutarch apparently derives this verb from threesa, 
Thracian women. End of footnote. Now Olympias, who affected these divine possessions more zealously than other women, and carried out these divine inspirations in wilder fashion, used to provide the revelling companies with great tame serpents, which would often lift their heads from out the ivy and the mystic winnowing baskets, footnote, sacred to Dionysus and carried on the heads of the celebrants, end of footnote, or coil themselves about the wands and garlands of the women, thus terrifying the men. However, after his vision, as we are told, Philip sent Chiron of Megalopolis to Delphi, by whom an oracle was brought him from Apollo, who bade him sacrifice to Ammon and hold that god in greatest reverence, but told him he was to lose that one of his eyes which he had applied to the chink in the door when he espied the god in the form of a serpent sharing the couch of his wife. Moreover, Olympias, as Eratosthenes says, when she sent Alexander forth upon his great expedition, told him, and him alone, the secret of his begetting, and bade him have purposes worthy of his birth. Others, on the contrary, say that she repudiated the idea, and said, Alexander must cease slandering me to Hera. Footnote. The lawful spouse of Zeus Ammon. End of footnote. Be that as it may, Alexander was born early in the month Hecatombion, the Macedonian name for which is Loas, on the sixth day of the month, and on this day the temple of Ephesian Artemis was burnt. Footnote. 356 B.C. The day of birth has probably been moved back two or three months for the sake of the coincidence mentioned below. Hecatombeon corresponds nearly to July. End of footnote. It was apropos of this that Hagesias, the Magnesian, made an utterance frigid enough to have extinguished that great conflagration. He said, namely, It was no wonder that the temple of Artemis was burned down, since the goddess was busy bringing Alexander into the world. But all the magi, who were then at Ephesus, looking upon the temple's disaster as a sign of further disaster, ran about beating their faces and crying aloud that woe and great calamity for Asia had that day been born. To Philip, however, who had just taken Potidaea, there came three messages at the same time. The first, that Parmenio had conquered the Illyrians in a great battle. The second, that his racehorse had won a victory at the Olympic Games, while a third announced the birth of Alexander. These things delighted him, of course, and the seers raised his spirits still higher by declaring that the son whose birth coincided with three victories would be always victorious. The outward appearance of Alexander is best represented by the statues of him which Lysippus made, and it was by this artist alone that Alexander himself thought it fit that he should be modelled. For those peculiarities which many of his successors and friends afterwards tried to imitate, namely the poise of the neck, which was bent slightly to the left, and the melting glance of his eyes, this artist has accurately observed. Apelles, however, in painting him as a wielder of the thunderbolt, did not reproduce his complexion, but made it too dark and swarthy. Whereas he was of a fair colour, as they say, and his fairness passed into ruddiness on his breast particularly, and in his face. Moreover, that a very pleasant odour exhaled from his skin, and that there was a fragrance about his mouth and all his flesh, so that his garments were filled with it. This we have read in the memoirs of Aristoxenus. Now the cause of this, perhaps, was the temperament of his body, which was a very warm and fiery one, for fragrance is generated, as Theophrastus thinks, where moist humours are acted upon by heat. Wherefore, 
The dry and parched regions of the world produce the most and best spices, for the sun draws away the moisture which, like material of corruption, abounds in vegetable bodies. And in Alexander's case, it was the heat of his body, as it would seem, which made him prone to drink and choleric. But while he was still a boy, his self-restraint showed itself in the fact that, although he was impetuous and violent in other matters, the pleasures of the body had little hold upon him, and he indulged in them with great moderation, while his ambition kept his spirit serious and lofty in advance of his years. For it was neither every kind of fame, nor fame from every source that he courted, as Philip did, who plumed himself like a sophist on the power of his oratory, and took care to have the victories of his chariots at Olympia engraved upon his coins. Nay, when those about him inquired whether he would be willing to contend in the foot-race at the Olympic Games, since he was swift of foot, Yes, said he, if I could have kings as my contestants. And in general, too, Alexander appears to have been averse to the whole race of athletes. At any rate, though he instituted very many contests, not only for tragic poets and players on the flute and players on the lyre, but also for rhapsodists, as well as for hunting of every sort and for fighting with staves, he took no interest in offering prizes either for boxing or for the pancratium. He once entertained the envoys from the Persian king who came during Philip's absence and associated with them freely. He won upon them by his friendliness and by asking no childish or trivial questions, but by inquiring about the length of the roads and the character of the journey into the interior, about the king himself, what sort of a warrior he was, and what the prowess and might of the Persians. The envoys were therefore astonished and regarded the much-talked-of ability of Philip as nothing compared with his son's eager disposition to do great things. At all events, as often as tidings were brought that Philip had either taken a famous city, or been victorious in some celebrated battle, Alexander was not very glad to hear them, but would say to his comrades, Boys, my father will anticipate everything, and for me he will leave no great or brilliant achievement to be displayed to the world with your aid. For since he did not covet pleasure, nor even wealth, but excellence and fame, he considered that the more he should receive from his father, the fewer would be the successes won by himself. Therefore, considering that increase in prosperity meant the squandering upon his father of opportunities for achievement, he preferred to receive from him a realm which afforded not wealth nor luxury and enjoyment, but struggles and wars and ambitions. In the work of caring for him, then, many persons, as was natural, were appointed to be his nurturers, tutors, and teachers. But over them all stood Leonidas, a man of stern temperament and a kinsman of Olympias. Although he did not himself shun the title of tutor, since the office afforded an honourable and brilliant occupation, yet by other people, owing to his dignity and his relationship, he was called Alexander's foster-father and preceptor. The man, however, who assumed the character and the title of tutor was Lysimachus, a native of Acarnania, who had no general refinement, but because he called himself Phoenix, footnote, the preceptor of Achilles, end of footnote. Alexander Achilles and Philip Peleus was highly regarded and held a second place. Once upon a time, Philoneicus the Thessalian brought Bucephalus, offering to sell him to Philip for thirteen talents. Footnote. The talent was worth about £235, or $1,200, with four or five times the purchasing power of modern money. End of footnote. 
and they went down into the plain to try the horse, who appeared to be savage and altogether intractable, neither allowing any one to mount him, nor heeding the voice of any of Philip's attendants, but rearing up against all of them. Then Philip was vexed, and ordered the horse to be led away, believing him to be altogether wild and unbroken. But Alexander, who was nearby, said, What a horse they are losing, because for lack of skill and courage they cannot manage him. At first, then, Philip held his peace. But as Alexander many times let fall such words, and showed great distress, he said, Dost thou find fault with thine elders in the belief that thou knowest more than they do, or art better able to manage a horse? This horse, at any rate, said Alexander, I could manage better than others have. And if thou shouldst not, what penalty wilt thou undergo for thy rashness? Indeed, said Alexander, I will forfeit the price of the horse. There was laughter at this, and then an agreement between father and son as to the forfeiture, and at once Alexander ran to the horse, took hold of his bridle rein, and turned him towards the sun. For he had noticed, as it would seem, that the horse was greatly disturbed by the sight of his own shadow falling in front of him and dancing about. And after he had calmed the horse a little in this way, and had stroked him with his hand, when he saw that he was full of spirit and courage, he quietly cast aside his mantle, and with a light spring safely bestrode him. Then, with a little pressure of the reins on the bit, and without striking him or tearing his mouth, he held him in hand. But when he saw that the horse was rid of the fear that had beset him, and was impatient for the course, he gave him his head, and at last urged him on with sterner tone and thrust of foot. Philip and his company were speechless with anxiety at first. But when Alexander made the turn in proper fashion and came back towards them proud and exultant, all the rest broke into loud cries, but his father, as we are told, actually shed tears of joy. And when Alexander had dismounted, kissed him, saying, my son, seek the outer kingdom equal to thyself. Macedonia has not room for thee. And since Philip saw that his son's nature was unyielding, and that he resisted compulsion, but was easily led by reasoning into the path of duty, he himself tried to persuade, rather than to command him. And because he would not wholly entrust the direction and training of the boy to the ordinary teachers of poetry and the formal studies, feeling that it was a matter of too great importance, and in the words of Sophocles, a task for many bits and rudder sweeps as well. He sent for the most famous and learned of philosophers, Aristotle, and paid him a noble and appropriate tuition fee. The city of Stagira, that is, of which Aristotle was a native, and which he had himself destroyed, he peopled again, and restored to it those of its citizens who were in exile or slavery. Well then, as a palace where master and pupil could labour and study, he assigned them the precinct of the nymphs, near Mieza, where to this day the visitor is shown the stone seats and shady walks of Aristotle. It would appear, moreover, that Alexander not only received from his master his ethical and political doctrines, but also participated in those secret and more profound teachings which philosophers designate by the special terms acromatic and epoptic, footnote, i.e. fit for oral teaching only, and for the initiated, esoteric as opposed to exoteric doctrines, end of footnote, and do not impart to many. For after he had already crossed into Asia, and when he learned that certain treatises on these recondite matters had been published in books by Aristotle, he wrote him a letter on behalf of philosophy, and put it in plain language, and this is a copy of the letter. 
Alexander, to Aristotle, greeting. Thou hast not done well to publish thy acromatic doctrines. For in what shall I surpass other men, if those doctrines wherein I have been trained are to be all men's common property? But I had rather excel in my acquaintance with the best things than in my power. Farewell. Accordingly, in defending himself, Aristotle encourages this ambition of Alexander by saying that the doctrines of which he spoke were both published and not published. For in truth, his treatise on metaphysics is of no use for those who would either teach or learn the science, but is written as a memorandum for those already trained therein. Moreover, in my opinion, Alexander's love of the art of healing was inculcated in him by Aristotle preeminently, for he was not only fond of the theory of medicine, but actually came to the aid of his friends when they were sick, and prescribed for them certain treatments and regimens, as one can gather from his letters. He was also by nature a lover of learning and a lover of reading, and since he thought and called the Iliad a viaticum of the military art, he took with him Aristotle's recension of the poem, called The Iliad of the Casket, and always kept it lying with his dagger under his pillow, as Onesicritus informs us. And when he could find no other books in the interior of Asia, he ordered Harpalus to send him some. So Harpalus sent him the books of Philistus, a great many of the tragedies of Euripides, Sophocles, and Aeschylus, and the dithyrambic poems of Telestus and Philoxenus. Aristotle he admired at the first, and loved him, as he himself used to say, more than he did his father, for that the one had given him life, but the other had taught him a noble life. Later, however, he held him in more or less of suspicion, not to the extent of doing him any harm, but his kindly attentions lacked their former ardour and affection towards him, and this was proof of estrangement. However, that eager yearning for philosophy, which was embedded in his nature, and which ever grew with his growth, did not subside from his soul, as is testified by the honour in which he held Anaxarchus, by his gift of fifty talents to Xenocrates, and by the attentions which he so lavishly bestowed upon Dandamis and Calanus. While Philip was making an expedition against Byzantium, footnote, in 340 BC, end of footnote, Alexander, though only sixteen years of age, was left behind as regent in Macedonia, and keeper of the royal seal, and during his time he subdued the rebellious Medi, and after taking their city drove out the barbarians, settled there a mixed population, and named the city Alexandropolis. He was also present at Chaeronea, and took part in the battle against the Greeks, footnote, in 338 BC, end of footnote, and he is said to have been the first to break the ranks of the sacred band of the Thebans, and even down to our day there was shown an ancient oak by the Cephasus called Alexander's Oak, near which at that time he pitched his tent, and the general sepulchre of the Macedonians is not far away. In consequence of these exploits, then, as was natural, Philip was excessively fond of his son, so that he even rejoiced to hear the Macedonians call Alexander their king, but Philip their general. However, the disorders in his household, due to the fact that his marriages and amours carried into the kingdom the infection, as it were, which reigned in the women's apartments, produced many grounds of offence and great quarrels between father and son, and these the bad temper of Olympias, who was a jealous and sullen woman, made still greater, since she spurred Alexander on. The most open quarrel was brought on by Attalus, at the marriage of Cleopatra, a maiden whom Philip was taking to wife, having fallen in love with the girl when he was past the age for it. Footnote. 
In consequence of this passion, Philip had divorced Olympias. End of footnote. Atalus, now, was the girl's uncle, and being in his cups, he called upon the Macedonians to ask of the gods that from Philip and Cleopatra there might be born a legitimate successor to the kingdom. At this, Alexander was exasperated, and with the words, But what of me, base wretch? Dost thou take me for a bastard? Threw a cup at him. Then Philip rose up against him with drawn sword, but fortunately for both, his anger and his wine made him trip and fall. Then Alexander, mocking over him, said, Look now, men, here is one who was preparing to cross from Europe into Asia, and he is upset in trying to cross from couch to couch. After this drunken broil, Alexander took Olympias and established her in Epirus, while he himself tarried in Illyria. Meanwhile, Demaratus, the Corinthian, who was the guest friend of the house and a man of frank speech, came to see Philip. After the first greetings and welcomes were over, Philip asked him how the Greeks were agreeing with one another, and Demaratus replied, It is surely very fitting, Philip, that thou shouldst be concerned about Greece when thou hast filled thine own house with such great dissensions and calamities. Thus brought to his senses, Philip sent and fetched Alexander home, having persuaded him to come through the agency of Demaratus. But when Pixodarus, the satrap of Caria, trying by means of a tie of relationship to steal into a military alliance with Philip, wished to give his eldest daughter in marriage to Aridaeus, the son of Philip, and sent Aristocritus to Macedonia on this errand, once more slanderous stories kept coming to Alexander from his friends and his mother, who said that Philip, by means of a brilliant marriage and a great connection, was trying to settle the kingdom upon Aridaeus. Greatly disturbed by these stories, Alexander sent Thessalus, the tragic actor, to Caria to argue with Pixodarus that he ought to ignore the bastard brother, who was also a fool, and make Alexander his connection by marriage. And this plan was vastly more pleasing to Pixodarus than the former. But Philip, becoming aware of this, went to Alexander's chamber, taking with him one of Alexander's friends and companions, Philotas, the son of Parmenio, and upbraided his son severely, and bitterly reviled him as ignoble and unworthy of his high estate, in that he desired to become the son-in-law of a man who was a Carian, and a slave to a barbarian king. And as for Thessalus, Philip wrote to the Corinthians that they should send him back to Macedonia in chains. Moreover, of the other companions of Alexander, he banished from Macedonia Harpalus and Nearchus, as well as Erigius and Ptolemy, men whom Alexander afterwards recalled and had in the highest honours. And so, when Pausanias, who had been outrageously dealt with at the instance of Attalus and Cleopatra, and could get no justice at Philip's hands, slew Philip, most of the blame devolved upon Olympias, on the ground that she had added her exhortations to the young man's anger, and incited him to the deed. But a certain amount of accusation attached itself to Alexander also, for it is said that when Pausanias, after the outrage that he had suffered, met Alexander and bewailed his fate, Alexander recited to him the iambic verse of the Medea, footnote, the Medea of Euripides. The context makes the verse suggest the murder of Attalus, Philip, and Cleopatra, end of footnote. The giver of the bride, the bridegroom, and the bride. However, he did seek out the participants in the plot and punished them, and was angry with Olympias for her savage treatment of Cleopatra during his absence. Footnote. After his death, Olympias killed Philip's infant son, together with his mother Cleopatra, niece of Atalus, by dragging them over a bronze vessel filled with fire. 
Pausanias. End of footnote. Thus it was that at the age of twenty years, Alexander received the kingdom, which was exposed to great jealousies, dire hatreds and dangers on every hand, for the neighbouring tribes of barbarians would not tolerate their servitude and longed for their hereditary kingdoms. And as for Greece, although Philip had conquered her in the field, he had not had time enough to make her tame under his yoke, but had merely disturbed and changed the condition of affairs there, and then left them in a great surge and commotion, owing to the strangeness of the situation. The Macedonian councillors of Alexander had fears of the crisis, and thought he should give up the Greek states altogether, and use no more compulsion there, and that he should call the revolting barbarians back to their allegiance by mild measures, and try to arrest the first symptoms of their revolutions, but he himself set out from opposite principles to win security and safety for his realm by boldness and a lofty spirit, assured that, were he seen to abate his dignity even but a little, all his enemies would set upon him. Accordingly, he put a speedy stop to the disturbances and wars among the barbarians, by overrunning their territories with an army as far as to the river Danube, where he fought a great battle with Sermus, the king of the Tribali, and defeated him, and on learning that the Thebans had revolted, and that the Athenians were in sympathy with them, he immediately led his forces through the pass of Thermopylae, declaring that since Demosthenes had called him a boy while he was among the Illyrians and Tribalians, and a stripling when he had reached Thessaly, he wished to show him that before the walls of Athens he was a man. Arrived before Thebes, and wishing to give her still a chance to repent of what she had done, he merely demanded the surrender of Phoenix and Prothetes, and proclaimed an amnesty for those who came over to his side. Footnote, in September 335 BC, Plutarch makes no mention of a previous expedition of Alexander into southern Greece, immediately after Philip's death, when he received the submission of all the Greek states except Sparta, and was made commander-in-chief of the expedition against Persia in Philip's place. End of footnote. But the Thebans made a counter-demand that he should surrender to them Philotas and Antipater, and made a counter-proclamation that all who wished to help in setting Greece free should range themselves with them, and so Alexander set his Macedonians to the work of war. On the part of the Thebans, then, the struggle was carried on with a spirit and valour beyond their powers, since they were arrayed against an enemy who was many times more numerous than they. But when the Macedonian garrison also, leaving the citadel of the Cadmea, fell upon them in the rear, most of them were surrounded, and fell in the battle itself and their city was taken, plundered, and razed to the ground. This was done in the main because Alexander expected that the Greeks would be terrified by so great a disaster, and cower down in quiet, but apart from this, he also plumed himself on gratifying the complaints of his allies, for the Phocians and Plataeans had denounced the Thebans. So after separating out the priests, all who were guest friends of the Macedonians, the descendants of Pindar, and those who had voted against the revolt, he sold the rest into slavery, and they proved to be more than 30,000. Those who had been slain were more than 6,000. Footnote. And we are told that Alexander preserved the house of Pindar, the poet, and the descendants of Pindar, out of regard for Pindar, Arian. End of footnote. End of section 9.